Welcome to episode 8 of the Georgetown Public Policy Review Podcast. In early December, the Institute for Politics and Public Service here at Georgetown held a conversation on feminism and conservatism, featuring an all-star panel of leading conservative women. Amanda Carpenter, former communications director for Ted Cruz, Essie Cup, nationally syndicated columnist, author, and popular commentator, and Mindy Finn, former senior digital advisor for the RNC and CEO of Empowered Women. GPPR was lucky enough to sit down with these guests after the discussion to get more of their thoughts on what conservative feminism really is, what the experience of a woman who, who is politically conservative really is, and the media that plays a role in the isolation of conservative women from the feminist conversation. Enjoy. Can we have you guys introduce yourself? We'll go left to right and give me name and kind of Twitter length bio. Sure. I'm Mindy Finn. Um, I'm a conservative political strategist, and I'm also the founder of Empowered Women, which is an organization uh, bringing more diverse voices into the conversation about um, women in public life. Okay. My name is Amanda Carpenter. I am a contributing editor at Conservative Review, CNN political commentator, and former communications director to Senator Ted, Ted Cruz. I am Essie Cup. I am a CNN host of Outside with Insiders and a commentator. I'm a nationally syndicated columnist and a columnist at the New York Daily News and a published author. Cool. Those are great at the Twitter bios. Yeah, that was really good. Um, yeah. I, I'll probably fit in the correct length, too. Do you want to start with a question? Sure, yeah. This is Alexa, a GPPR spring editor. Um, first, we wanted to talk to you guys about what you guys might have talked about this at the event for people who weren't there, if you just go over what you guys said the conservative woman's experience was, both, you know, in politics or just in the voting booth, like, what does that mean and what is that experience like and how does that differ from maybe your average woman or, you know, a liberal woman or what's that, that experience? So in my career working in Republican political campaigns, I didn't really think that much of being a woman, frankly. Um, and I actually worked in, or have worked in the digital kind of tech space, and there was very few women. And at some point, so kind of I, like people would have to remind me, not that I don't know I'm a woman, but it just was not like part of my experience. I just did my job. Um, in terms of the voting booth, it's kind of similarly. I never thought I need to vote a certain way because I'm a woman. I have my beliefs, and and that's how I vote. That said, I, I think um, conservative women are face different scrutiny than liberal women, just because there's kind of this like cultural, um, mainstream cultural assumption that we would be liberal. Um, and so we're often having to defend that and we're kind of held to, you know, we're held to a different standard. Yeah. And this is, I think part of the conservative women's experience is the fact that we come to politics and media is not through traditional women's networks because they're so dominated by liberal democratic policies. And as soon as you kind of identify with conservative ideas and values, you are immediately met with the backlash from liberal women who are saying, well, you're not supporting the women's uh, movement because you don't support abortion politics or mandated uh, maternity leave and things like that. And so that is always part of the experience because you're accused of being a traitor to your gender. And so trying to figure out how to navigate that and uh, learn those arguments and be a part of that debate while standing up for what you believe in and at the same time not being hijacked by that debate and spending all your time on it is something all conservative women go through that's unique. Uh, this is Essie. This is why a radio show with three women would never work because you can't distinguish voices. <laughs> believe me, I've tried it. Um, I, yeah, I've, I found being a conservative woman, the, the conservative woman experience, I found it incredibly empowering. I, I found it helped me identify my voice and maybe it's because I was surrounded by liberals for so much of my young life and continuing into my, you know, 20s and 30s that it, it was really, it really made me um, feel like um, I'd come to a real solid understanding of who I was and what I believed in. And what I tell college kids, because I, I speak at colleges all the time, is honestly, it's like the last way you can be a rebel on a college mm -hmm. campus anymore is to be conservative. I mean, I go to these schools and they're still having the same conversations my parents were having in the 70s about, you know, Mein Kampf and like, you know, Betty Friedan. I mean, it, it's the same stuff. So uh, it, it feels like if you were to have like a march for fiscal responsibility on a college campus today, that would be like headline news. Radical. It is. But Radical weirdos. Yeah. Why exactly. do you care about that? Um, instead, they're having, you know, marches about, you know, abortion and, you know, gender pronouns. And it's just, 
it it feel it felt empowering to me at the time. It still feels empowering today at 36 to be a, a conservative woman. And I, I tell every conservative woman or woman who's trying to come to grips with their political identity that this was the most exciting thing I ever decided to do was to become a conservative woman. Now, why do you think that, at least in the mainstream, feminism and conservatism have, have drifted so far apart ideologically? I feel like today we feminism is sort of owned by a liberal space, or at least more openly, or at least the media may drive that. I'm not sure. But why do you think that, at least the way people view it, conservative, conservatism and feminism can't be seen one in the same? I, I would say this is Amanda because the feminist movement has made feminism solely about liberal politics. Mm -hmm. They've abandoned the concept of supporting women, uh, being able to come to their own choices, and it's all about mandating a one-size-fits-all you know, response to name your problem that they're attempting to solve. And so in emphasizing that kind of groupthink approach to feminism, they've driven other women away, particularly conservatives. And I think intentionally they've right. driven conservative women away, which is the other problem. It's not just that their policies only appeal to roughly half of women. It's that the half of women that they don't appeal to have become demonized by feminists. Mm -hmm. And that's not helpful to the project of feminism, whether it's second wave feminism or even you know, contemporary feminism. Um, you know, nor is it a way to truly represent choice among women and equality and empowerment. Um, my idea of feminism was always that it was to empower uh, women to make whatever choice they wanted, whether that was to work or stay at home or um, be pro-gun, be pro-life, be religious, um, be an atheist, as I am. And when feminists and liberal feminists decided that we were the enemy, we weren't the right kind of woman, I think that turned a lot of people off, including some quote-unquote feminists. Yeah, that's true. I mean, it was a polit deliberate political strategy to drive a wedge among women. So it's no, not a surprise that feminism became entangled with liberalism and conservative women felt totally left out. And why would we embrace that term? Mm -hmm. Yeah. So when we talk to, so, do you want to go? Yeah, I go. I was going to, I'm sort of playing on the title of the event, which I thought was interesting, which was rewriting gender politics. Um, when we think about that, do we see it as sort of aligning women from the left and the right under this broader women's movement? Or do we see it as sort of creating a branch of feminism that sort of welcomes more conservative women? Because I would think the former kind of assumes that women all want the same thing, which isn't necessarily mm -hmm. true. Mm -hmm. We're not single story individuals. So I reject this notion that, you know, I'm a, a, I'm a woman and that comes with a whole set of things that, um, you know, are associated with me. Or I'm a conservative and so you just assume that I believe certain things about, you know, every single issue. Or I, you know, am have feminist beliefs, and so that means that I hate men. No, so... Um, <laughs> Feminazi is the appropriate term. It's coined by Rush Limbaugh. <laughs> so I think, labels for all of it. Yeah. I think that's more of a progress. I mean, this is like so Madonna, but I've often said that I'm more of a humanist. Like, I truly value each of us as individuals and as humans for who we are, and I think that's so much more than our, our politics, frankly. I'm very feels very strongly about my politics, but I'm more than my politics. Just like I'm more, there are certain things that I love being a woman, and there's many things, opportunities that that gives me. It's incredibly empowering, nor, but it doesn't define me completely. Ditto. Agreed. <laughs> Drop the mic. We're my She sees for me on that one. <laughs> um, okay, so you mentioned that you said it's important to tell these stories to humanize Republican women. And at the same time, you also said that there isn't a shortage of kind of online portals, not necessarily online, but, you know, portals for women to kind of speak about their experiences and to be kind of actively engaged and involved. Mm -hmm. I guess the question is kind of where where are they? Where have they come or where are we seeing um, women with a conservative kind of view mm -hmm. get involved okay. with the process? Is it on campaigns? Is it online? Is it is it something that you guys have seen kind of uniquely in a particular space, or is it something that um, is a more general thing that is slowly but surely happening? Well, one of them is running for president, sure. <laughs> um, which is great. Um, you know, there are some great Republican um, women leaders, one of whom was going to join us tonight, Congressman Marsha Blackburn, giving great voice to conservative women and, and, and um, you know, the issues that we all care about. But um, 
I'll speak from a media standpoint in the media space. I mean, turn on Fox News, go to conservative um, online media, conservative radio. I mean, is a great place for a woman with conservative views. I mean, I have never in all of my years doing media found myself without an outlet. I mean, right now I have like eight, eight, eight or nine, um, you know, just because I, I enjoy it so much. But if you're a woman and a conservative with a viewpoint, there are so many places for you to go. And these are mainstream places. These are not just anymore sort of the, you know, fringy, um, you know, dark corners of the web. And that's because I think conservative media has really, in a free market way, filled a gap that had existed before Fox News came around 30 years ago. The answer to leftist media was not to silence the leftist media, it was to add a conservative voice that was clearly missing. And so the success of the conservative media, and especially the success of a conservative woman in media, I think is a huge testament to the, you know, representative representation of conservative women in the country. Yeah, I'm going to compound on that question a little more, too, because, Mindy, I saw you speak at um, the Women in Washington conference by the National Journal in May. Mm -hmm. It was a great panel sort of encouraging women to run for office, and I think that's a really important point, and I kind of want to wonder if sort of the lack of visceral conservative women that I think we see in the media more. We see a lot of Democratic women, I think, that media covers, but I and this could just be a media slant, I'm not sure, but I feel like we don't get as much coverage of conservative women in politics um, unless they're running for president. Um, and I would wonder if that sort of plays a role in why we maybe don't see more women coming in. And I don't know if you can speak to that a little bit. I don't know how much it plays a role. I mean, I, I, I often speak to those, sometimes you, you know, <laughs> for people who are not as engaged, I mean, we're political junkies, we follow it all the time. Um, and you you are really, it's just the images that you see go by. If you don't see yourself in something, it's hard to imagine yourself there. So mm -hmm. there are a lot more conservative women in media that, than there were at, at one point. Amanda and Essie are, are great examples. And we have more Republican women elected officials than we did at one point, really par powerful and strong ones, particularly if you look at the gubernatorial level. Um, it's really impressive and at the state legislative level. So there are these women, there still is a slant. Like I, I actually don't buy that there's not a slant at all. I mean, and, and part of this has really been heard of the last almost eight years that the um, President Obama has been in the White House because it's kind of given a free pass to just cover Michelle Obama, to cover Valerie Jarrett, to cover a lot of these people who are part of the Obama White House. Mm -hmm. um, and Republicans aren't yet competing, or weren't able to compete on that level because we didn't have the presidency. But um, so I don't know. I mean, I, you know, I, I, whether how much the media has an impact um, on whether you know women can see themselves as conservatives, I'm not sure. I think media has an impact broadly. Mm -hmm. um, but you know, I think conservative women are catching up, and we yeah. see good more conservative women than we've ever seen. I would say the place you see the biggest slant on that and Democratic women being glamorized is in women's fashion magazines. Yeah. Um, I, I have noticed improvement in this year, uh, magazines like Glamour uh, trying to give equal coverage to women politicos. But I mean, if you go back and anybody can go through the archives of Glamour magazine, Elle, and the rest and look at the political women they cover, I, I can assure you that Democratic women are covered far more than Republican women. There is no even recognition that they would give equal treatment. But you open up the fashion magazines and, you know, there's a glamorous spread of Huma Amadine in this Valentino dress. <laughs> right. um, you know, a few years ago, I remember thinking how remarkable it was that they had Sarah Palin. Mm -hmm. um, and that was really one of the first women I had seen profiled in one of those beautiful ways in a fashion magazine. This is when she just became governor. And of course, I think she was in her Alaskan gear sitting in the snow somewhere. <laughs> so it's a little stereotypical. Um, but I, I, I think conservative women need to make far more effort to make inroads in those influential fashion magazines because they do cover politics and they cover it in a very aggressive way and they barely give a week and a nod to conservative thought. As a features writer for Glamour magazine, let me just say we are making, <laughs> yeah, we, are making we are making those attempts uh, right now. I, yeah, I, and they've made a, they've made inroads and I think I've heard the editor talk about because yeah. they realize they had a problem. problem. Yes. <laughs> well, and Glamour likes to say actually that um, you know they're the most read fashion magazine in the flyover states. And so I think they're mm -hmm. recognizing that like for conservative women who read fashion magazines, it might be nice once in a while to cover us and to cover our issues in a non sort of satirical or mocking or, or angry way, but in a way that is gives legitimacy to our, our viewpoint. Yeah, well, and one thing, I would just to pick up on Glamour, in the 2008 election, they did, they had some political bloggers. I was one of five, I think. I was the only one who was remotely Republican. Yeah. It was one versus five. 
and this is where I knew that even they recognized they had a problem because they'd say, wow, we can't believe all the you know hateful comments that you get and nobody else gets. And I'm like, it's because I'm a conservative woman. You don't put conservative women in yeah. these pages. And so mm-hmm. they, they're doing better, but it would be mm-hmm. a really interesting study for somebody to go back through the archives of all of them. Yeah, yep. it's, a, it's an opportunity for Glamour, though, because Cosmo uh-huh. did something unprecedented <sighs> last election cycle and that they said, we're going to endorse candidates for the first time, right. yep. um, but they would only endorse Democrats because they essentially would only endorse those who are strictly pro-choice. Mm-hmm. Um, so they would even endorse a Democratic male who was running against a Republican female. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah. it, was more, it wasn't even like, oh, we're so for women. No, we're for one issue. Yeah. Yeah, that's a, yeah, that's a really interesting point. I had never thought to look at fashion magazines as sort of a, an impetus for bringing women into that space. Yeah. We just hit 15 minutes, exactly. So, <gasps> we are amazing! Thanks, I was going to say, let's do one more question, but nope. Next up, we decided to sit down with IPPS Executive Director Moa Lathy, who's brought a gust of energizing political wind to the Georgetown campus this fall through his leadership at the Institute. We really wanted to know, what was the impetus for this event? Why have it now? What did he take away from it? And how does he characterize the political climate for conservative feminism? And what different political actors could really do to get at the heart of some of these issues? Listen in. I'm the executive director of the Georgetown Institute of Politics and Public Service. I've been here since the beginning of June uh, when we uh, began um, the institute. Uh, Before that, I spent 20 years in between graduating from Georgetown as an undergrad and uh, starting the institute, coming back to Georgetown. I spent 20 years as a democratic political operative working on campaigns around the country including as Hillary Clinton's campaign press secretary in 2008 and um, director, communications director of the Democratic National Committee. Cool. Awesome. A little longer than Twitter. <laughs> yeah. Um, and so last night we had, I forget what it's called now. Um, Rewriting Gender Politics. Rewriting Gender Politics. That's a great title. Yeah. So we have some questions about it and we'll kind of talk with you and want to go. Yeah, yeah. Um, so we talked a little bit about this before, but if you wanted, you so you have a, you have a really interesting role on campus in that you've caused a lot of buzz and you've engaged students in a way that I think students that have been here, especially undergrads for a few years, haven't necessarily felt politically like they've had a space to come to to have some of these conversations with people they want to hear from, and um, and you played a really great role in sort of bringing that on campus. And this is an interesting topic: conservatism and feminism together. Um, can you talk about the impetus for this event a little bit and what what brought you to want to bring it here to campus? Yeah, look, I'm a, uh, as I said, I'm a 20-year veteran of democratic partisan politics, right? I have, I've written my share of press releases attacking the Republican Party for its war on women. I have, um, you know, been in the trenches fighting these battles. Um, but when I got here with a commitment to actually have real dialogue, one of the first things I did was read this blog post by Amber Athey, who is the... Uh, president of GU College Republicans, in which she talked, she wrote this over the summer, and she wrote a piece about how uh, difficult it is to be a conservative on a progressive campus, and how ostracized you feel, and how, you know, sitting at a pro-life booth or table in Red Square, uh, the invective that's thrown at, at you. And not only is it tough to be a young conservative on a college campus, because you're viewed, in her mind, as a traitor to your um, to your generation, to be a young conservative woman, it's compounded because you're seen as a traitor to your gender as well. So we know you're really excited to hear the rest of Mo's interview, which you will, but when he told us the story about Amber Athey and her blog post, we decided to reach out to her to get her side of the story. Sure, I'm a senior in the college, majoring in government and economics and minoring in math. Um, I have one semester left. And kudos. Yeah, I actually just finished my chairmanship of the College Republicans. Um, How long had you been doing that? That was a year-long gig, so December to December. Very cool. Um, so we brought you on because when we were talking with um, Mo, we heard that you provided an interesting impetus for the event, the conservative feminism event, um, in the fact that he wrote a blog piece that you had written in August, you said. Mm-hmm. Um, could you tell us about that piece, what inspired you to write it, and kind of the reception you got from it, both maybe from people on and off campus? Yeah, so it kind of stemmed a lot from social media. Um, just being a conservative on campus, I've gotten a lot of backlash, both on Facebook, Twitter, um, and also in person. I talked a little bit about my experiences in the blog of 
not really having an easy time finding friends freshman year because I was essentially bullied for my political beliefs. And all of this sort of culminated into a point where I was sort of boiling over. So I sat down one night and I just wrote this about a thousand word piece and it was really sloppy. I sent it to the right way editor and he was like, ah, like I see where you're going with this, but maybe, you know, tone it down a little bit and kind of edit it. And so I went back and I rewrote it. Um, and after the rewrite, I was like, yes, I think this is ready to publish. And so I called it No Climate for Conservatives and it was published on the right way in August. And it basically just outlined all of the backlash that I get from my peers on campus for being a conservative um, whether it's name calling or sexual harassment, any of those types of things, just solely because of my political beliefs, um, it's really frustrating. And so that was a really good way for me to kind of let out that anger and also to kind of speak to what a lot of conservatives on campus, not just myself, experience. And how do you think that's compounded by the fact, or how do you, how do, have you seen that be compounded by the fact that you're female? Like, how does it differ from maybe the guys on the college Republicans mm -hmm. or just general friends you have that are also conservative that are male? Yeah, so for being a female conservative, it differs, one, because of the sexual comments that come with it. So I actually outlined in the, the blog piece that one of the things that happened to me was that people would draw phallic objects on my whiteboard on my dorm room um, door or they would say, um, I, I can't repeat what they said. <laughs> they, were really, they were really disgusting. And you know, you don't see males getting that kind of treatment. And it's also frustrating because I get a lot of the flack from fellow women who tell me, you're voting against your interest, you're a traitor to women, um, why are you voting against what would be good for you and good for women as a whole? Don't you understand that women's issues are so important, you know, why are you basically on the opposite side of where you should be? And I don't understand, one, I don't understand what a woman's issue is. All issues are women's issues. You know, I don't see why I'm supposed to regard abortion higher than the economy. Those issues are equal in my mind. They're both equally important. And I also don't understand what a woman's position is. Why has pro-choice become the default women's position. Mandatory uh, maternity leave is a default women's position. Um, free birth control is a, a women's position. And I don't understand why. And you know, when we try to explain why we're on the other side of these issues, it's either you don't understand or you're bigoted, you're ignorant, all of these types of comments. And yeah, it's just ridiculous. And while men get sort of the treatment on women's issues where they're not even allowed to speak about it. Women who try to speak about it automatically get lambasted and just completely denigrated. Yeah, and it's interesting because we we had talked to um, other guests on the podcast about this too, but the title of the event was Rewriting Gender Politics, mm -hmm. Conservative Feminism. And that sort of implied to me that you know, you're either trying to align the left and the right under this umbrella of feminism mm -hmm. or you know, a women's movement. Um, or you're creating sort of a separate branch of feminism that is more welcome to women of different mm -hmm. political beliefs being yeah. on the left. Um, do you think it's one or the other? Because in my mind, to your point, one kind of assumes that there are these things called women issues that all women should support, mm -hmm. you know, regardless of anything else, and their their gender and sex as a woman means that they have to support this and this and this and this. Um, so I'm kind of interested what you think about that. Yeah, well, I think feminism has just become so politicized that it's automatically assumed that a feminist, like you said, agrees with these positions. And that shouldn't be a default. And I think the point of the rewriting gender politics is that feminism has to either be rebranded to include conservative women, or there has to be maybe a separate conservative feminism that we talked about. I'm not sure which one's better or which one would be more effective, but I think it's definitely fair to say that conservative women are often left out of the current feminist movement. How do you think the feminist movement does that? Or how do you feel like, personally, how do you think it does that? Well, definitely the things that I mentioned, you know, saying that I'm a traitor to women for the way that I vote in elections, or because I don't support a specific policy position, then I must be anti-women. I mean, I've been called a misogynist, and I certainly don't hate myself, so I'm not, <laughs> sure, not sure where that comes from, but... 
just all of the backlash that conservative women get solely for their political views, as if somehow they're not allowed to be a feminist because of them, is just ridiculous. Yeah. And then in that same vein, so we talk about maybe the feminist movement playing a role in how they can better you know, bring women of different political ideologies in, but how might you suggest the conservative, you know, conservatives or the Republican Party do better at, you know, encouraging young women or just women in general to, you know, invest in conservative beliefs or just mm -hmm. instead of, you know, assuming themselves, well, I'm a woman, I must be a Democrat <clears throat> or I'm just an independent because I don't know because I can't be a Republican. So yeah. these sort of, these things that we hear as women, I think, can convince as many women, regardless of whether or not invested in politics, to align themselves with the left or just independently. Um, so what do you think the Republican Party, or just generally as a college Republican here on campus, like how do you bring young women and women in general into this? Yeah, well, I think it's definitely fair to say that the left has done a better job of specifically targeting women. Mm -hmm. And I think that's because Republicans are, they don't want to segment people. You know, they don't want to have to specifically target minorities or specifically target women. But as we've seen, that's not effective. So there has to be a way that we can sell ourselves to women, whether it's, you know, explaining to women, our free market principles are going to help you best support a family. Or um, as SC Cuff said at the event, mandatory maternity leave isn't a good idea because that's a conversation that's better left between you and your employer. And in many cases, the mandatory leave is actually less than what you would get through your through your job currently. Um, so just rebranding these issues in a way that, yes, they target women, but they're also from a conservative viewpoint. Um, and I think also, uh, what was I going to say? Something about how you as a college Republican on campus could do something? Yeah, so I think just having women represented as conservatives is really important. Um, as I mentioned before, um, our board last year was majority female, and I think that helped get a lot of female members involved. That's really interesting. I don't think yeah. people know that. Yeah. yeah. Um, and, you know, I, I heard one of the college Democrats say at one point, um, you can tell that I'm a Democrat because I'm a woman. And I said, well, the majority of our club is female, so I don't know where this assumption comes from. And I think it's it's twofold. It's breaking the assumption that women have to be Democrats. And a huge part of that is just having conservative women present. Mm -hmm. And that's why I really love the panel, because you saw three really accomplished, really outspoken conservative women who were able to defend their views and... I think it inspired a lot of both men and women, you know, there are conservative women who are incredibly accomplished and, you know, you don't have to automatically be a Democrat because you're a woman. Yeah. Do you have any favorite female conservative icons? As a, as a self-proclaimed <laughs> feminist, I love any and all feminist icons. So. <laughs> um, I really like Elise Stefanik. Mm -hmm. um, She's the youngest woman mm -hmm. ever elected to Congress. Um, from New York, right? From New York. Mm -hmm. um, graduated from Harvard, I believe. Um, so she's like 20, is she 29? She's, or yeah, she's, she's 29 or 30. Yeah, she's incredibly young. I mean, who thinks to run for Congress when they're in their 20s? That is just insane. <laughs> Personally, nope. <laughs> nope. But I think it's awesome. I mean, you always see conservative women who are in like their 40s and 50s mm -hmm. yeah but now we're starting to accessible to young women yeah so we're starting to see conservative women who are in their 20s and already being elected to congress like that's incredible that's yeah. so inspiring yeah well thank you so much for being here yeah, yeah. absolutely thanks Appreciate for having it. me <laughs> now back to mo and to be a young conservative woman it's compounded because you're seen as a traitor to your gender as well being the lead spokesperson for the Democratic Party, and I just, I just felt like I got kicked in the gut reading that. Like it sucks that any young person on a college campus where you're supposed to be exploring ideas would feel that their voice isn't welcome or heard. And whether or not that's a reality, if you, I, I come from a world where perception is reality. If you feel it, then it's real. Mm -hmm. And so that got us thinking as we were kicking off our programming. You know, how do we engage that conversation? And when we decided to launch our Women in Politics series, this was one of the first events we wanted to do. It was one that really looked at gender politics from the right and is conservatism and, or are conservatism and feminism compatible? 
um, even though I believe that as a as a longtime Democrat that the Democratic Party's policies will further women more than the Republican Party's policies. Um, there are here we're a group of very successful, very um, uh, strong women operatives who can make a case uh, from the other side, and that, that's an important conversation to have. And what was the student response? So Matt, Matt and I being the Twitter nerds that we are, looked at some of the tweets from the event and we saw a lot of, you know, really interesting conversation about feminism and conservatism, but beyond that sort of top level, high level, this is really interesting commentary. What was the student response or the questions you got or maybe the reactions or maybe from observing? And... So there are a couple of, uh, I think, interesting observations I had observing. One, the crowd was engaged, right? I mean, it was probably one of our better attended events. Um, and it was an engaged crowd. Two, there were a lot of conservative women in the crowd oh, who, who were excited to uh, have a platform to uh, to hear, to hear from you know. And, and look, our, our our panelists were are successful political operatives and commentators. They're also younger, mm -hmm. right? So I think it was for a lot of these conservative women um, almost a validation for them that you know. It's okay. Like we, there are people like us out there, um, and we're asking some smart questions about how the conservative movement can better appeal, right? So there was that dialogue going on. I also found it really interesting that the crowd was not uniquely conservative; that there were a good number of progressives that were there, and um, I found it interesting that um, there were a lot of men there. In fact, the first three questions all came from men. Um, what were they? Or what were, generally at the top of your head, that's interesting. Um, the first question came from came from a man, and it was generally about um, how the left has co-opted a lot of the language around yeah. around uh, gender and uh, politics, and what are some of the things that the right can do to to counter that. It was clearly from a, a young conservative man. Mm -hmm. um, so, um, so it was just, a, it was, again, just a, I, I said this at the end of the event publicly, that this may be one of my favorite events that we've done since, since we kicked off the Institute, because it just it was counterintuitive to a lot of people. And, and I like that. I like that. And it gave a platform to a point of view that's not always heard. And we want to do more of that. And strategically, maybe from a Republican side or conservative side, why do you think that feminism and conservative conservatism have ideologically drifted so far apart? Has that been sort of an operative of the Democrat side that they've adopted this terminology or this rhetoric and <clears throat> taken it into their own and really made it an enemy thing? Or is it something where maybe they haven't made enough effort with women? Or is there a, a, a lacking amount of conservative women? Do they just not exist as much as they may have used to? I think if you look at politics today and look at voting patterns, women tend not to be, the, the majority of American women are not ideological, right? You have your progressives, you have your conservatives, but the great middle is neither, right? Um, and they believe in some of the policies um, that are uh, that, uh, of each side. If you look at sort of your average suburban mom, um, she may be, and again, I'm way overgeneralizing. Right? <laughs> you kind of have to. But you kind of have to a little bit. Uh, yeah. But she may be very progressive on social issues. She may be very progressive on issues like women's health, maybe very progressive on um, some um, uh, spending priorities, right? Investing more in education, investing in, in the way that Democrats tend to talk about it as opposed to Republicans. Having said that, they're not rigid in that. They like issues like they tend to support school choice. They tend to support some of the more school reform, the way con uh, the conservative movement has pushed it uh, on fis fiscally and economically. They tend to be more conservative than than progressive. Then you can't really pigeonhole them, mm -hmm. right? Um, you know, I had an interesting conversation once with some Republicans about gun control, right? Suburban moms support both sides. A lot of them, a lot of them own guns. A lot of them want the right to defend themselves, but they want background checks, right? They don't. They can't be pigeonholed. 
Um, and I think Democrats and progressives over the years have done a better job of just kind of owning the label, um, speaking to women, and Republicans haven't. I remember in 2012, during the, that election, when across the country, Democrats were focusing on women's issues, quote, I'm doing the air quotes here for your listeners, on women's issues. And, <laughs> there and, were, in fact, real air quotes. And um, uh, talking about things like, let me take a step back. Republicans have actually fed into this a little bit by taking on, and it's usually older white Republican men, but by taking on some issues, like when the Virginia legislature passed the um, the mandatory transvaginal ultrasound legislation, right? Um, and Democrats seized on that and jumped on it and made the election about that and expanded it to, you know, the whole abortion issue. And Republicans actually empowered Democrats to own this by walking around and saying, as we travel the country, as we, Mitt Romney said this, Senate candidates said this, you know, we don't hear any women talking about these social issues. They care about the economy. And smart Democrats would turn around and say, no, 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 no. These aren't social issues. These aren't women's issues. These are economic issues. These are family issues. When you're taking away a woman's right to make her own health care decisions, you're making an economic decision for her family. Mm -hmm. And so Democrats were able to broaden the conversation a little bit more while Republicans empowered them to do so. So last night's conversation was interesting because here are some incredibly strategic, smart, conservative women who are making the case on how Republicans can now actually engage on that term and on that turf and have the conversation around the kitchen table the way Democrats have dominated for so long. So I don't think it's a matter of the, there being more or less conservative women than progressive women. I think it's which side has done a better job of speaking to women more broadly? Mm -hmm. um, and I think uh, that's, uh, that's Democrats. They made another interesting point last night that I think there are a few Democrats out there that understand the significance of this, um, but not enough for, for the Democratic Party, that the gender gap is real. It's bigger among men and Democrats than it is among Republicans and women. Mm. Mm, yeah. Right. Well, Republicans lose women by less than Democrats lose men. Mm -hmm. um, and so that's part of the conversation. Right. But you don't ever hear about that. You don't hear commentators or operatives or political people talking about the gender gap in terms of men and the Democratic Party. You don't hear them talk about a war on men. Right. Uh, th th that that kind of language doesn't exist. Mm -hmm. um, but it's real. And, and I actually think could, could that dynamic, if it continues to grow could have a larger impact on political realities and electoral results uh, longer, long term than than the uh, than the conversation we're having now. Definitely, yeah. And while you were talking to it, kind of made me think a, a parallel of that is also the way um, I would say Republicans have owned the religious community or have, have owned right. that the vernacular yeah. around that. And you can make an interesting parallel too with people who are religious and also aligned democratically. That's um, exactly right. And there, that's right, right? There's a, just as there's a perception that Republicans are incompatible with women's issues and feminism, there's a feeling that Democrats are, are incompatible with people of faith. Mm -hmm. um, neither is true. And both sides have to their own uh, and further this narrative, right? I mean, as a longtime political strategist and Democratic strategist, I have heard too many times and said it myself that there's this Republican war on women. There is no Republican war on women. Mm -hmm. Republicans are not out to destroy women. I think their policies are worse, but they're not out to destroy women. There is no democratic war on religion. There's no democratic war on the military, right? To again, more recent attacks from the right. Democrats are not out to destroy the military. They're not out to destroy Christianity or religion. <laughs> um, you may think that their policies are, are, are are more or less compatible, but we don't have to destroy it. Um, and the rhetoric has gotten so hot um, that um, that it's hard to understand where we can even begin to have a real conversation sometimes. 
Yeah, and sort of branching off that, and I'm going to get you on something you said before, too, because, and Mindy spoke to this last night in our conversation, but um, just this idea that, you know, when we talk about conservative feminism, is that adopt aligning women from the left and the right, or is that creating sort of a, a new, a different branch, branch of feminism? Yeah. Um, because in my opinion, the former kind of assumes that all women want the same thing. And I would almost say that feminism adopts that idea that we as women want these things. And I think to your point before, you know, you were talking about this, maybe this average woman right. who is socially progressive, but fiscally, like, what if she's not socially progressive? That's right. That's right. I mean, we do such a disservice when we overgeneralize, right? Coming from a guy who just overgeneralized, <laughs> we do such a disservice when we do this because like, you're right. And Mindy was right last night. We assume too often that the American electorate is monolithic or segments are monolithic, right? Not all women agree on everything. Mm -hmm. So why do we always talk about them as if they do? Not all Hispanics agree on everything. Mm -hmm. But why is it we're always talking about the Hispanic vote when it's not, you know, a monolithic entity? And South Florida Cubans vote very differently than Southwest United States Mexican-Americans who vote differently in Right? There's a bigger divergence between urban women and suburban women and rural women, or just as big of one as there is amongst any other uh, segment of the, of the population. So, so politically, electorally, we oversimplify this. And I think substantively, we oversimplify it. Women, women do not all agree with the same issues. There are a lot of women out there who do not believe in abortion. There are a lot of women out there who do not believe um, in in having the government pay for contraceptive coverage. There are a lot of women out there who who ascribe to more conservative points of view socially, economically. That does not make them any less of a woman. Um, I disagree with them on on the policy. But um, if we don't understand where they're coming from, I don't get how we're going to find the, the common ground. Right. And, and so I guess the question is kind of how much of that is born out of a lot of it, a lot of what you were talking about earlier in the fact that, you know, how do you start even having a conversation? We're just talking past each other by using these caricatures of people that don't really exist. How much of that is born out of it? Really, it's just politically efficient. To do so, um, you can kind of rile up your base very easily by basically talking to stereotypes. Um, that's effective. It works in in a as a vote getting strategy, and that's and I I guess you can kind of speak to you know IPPS's role of how do we reel in that conversation a little bit? How do we how do we pull back from the caricatures that we paint of the other side that are have historically been a useful political tool and i'm going to compound on that too so not only what what people what groups like ipps can do but from there you know what responsibility does do feminists or the feminist movement have in maybe opening up the doors of this group to you know women of all types which is something they've the movement's been criticized of not doing and then the republican party as well like what can they do to sort of either message their intentions in a different way or so sort of a cross sector what kind of yeah that's a whole lot of ground to cover yeah but so the first part of the question i just think it's symptomatic of the broader problem mm-hmm. right no one's talking to one another no one's everyone's talking past one another and i actually think yeah, it's a political tool to rally the base. And I think that's becoming worse in this digital age that we live in, where, you know, we're having sh- screaming matches and arguments 140 characters at a time on Twitter instead of sitting down and actually, like, you know, there was a student last night who came up afterwards and said, you know, I disagree with them politically, but at least I now am beginning to understand where they're coming from. We don't ever take that opportunity to understand where our opponent's coming from. Our opponent, not our enemy, right? Our political opponent, where the other side is coming from. Um, and that's important. That doesn't mean you have to be constantly, we're not going to agree on everything. We're not supposed to be, right? I mean, geopolitics, one of the things that we believe here is we're not a nonpartisan institute. We're a pro-partisan institute. We want 
to encourage people to be passionate in their beliefs. Mm -hmm. And we're not always going to agree. There are going to be winners and losers sometimes. Mm -hmm. But when we don't agree, how do we move the ball? Right? That's the part that we seem to have lost in our political system today. How do we move the ball when we can't agree? Mm -hmm. And I think this is a great example of that. Right? We're not talking to each other. We're yelling at one another, past one another, digitally. Right? <laughs> in this digital world we live in, we are getting our information from sources that we're predisposed to agree with now. Right? Because, you know, conservatives are going to Fox and Breitbart and Daily Caller and progressives are going to MSNBC and Huffington Post. Right? Because with all this explosion of new digital media, you have the luxury of finding the source that already agrees like that most. you already agree with. Yeah. Um, and so we're not talking to the undecided or the people in the middle. Even big data has changed the way, like as a campaign operative, I love data. I think it's awesome. It's making campaigns more efficient. Right? I can now look at two households that are right next to each other watching the same exact television show, and I can target different television ads to that in the same show. Um, data is allowing us to communicate more efficiently. But what does that mean? It means I don't need to talk to as many undecided voters anymore because now I can find out who are the people that are supposed to think like me and just go and drag them out of their house to get them to vote. I don't need as the undecided vote as much. I don't need to convince because convincing is more expensive than turning out. And so this is a bigger issue right. about why I think politics, some of the challenges politics has, and I think it's very true in this space and talking about women's issues. You get more efficient at doing the easier part. That's right. That's right. It's easier for Democrats to mobilize, you know, around fear. It's easier for Republicans to mobilize around fear. Mm -hmm. Um or to mo at the very least, just to mobilize the people who think like them. Mm -hmm. uh, and so we're doing a disservice for this average woman who lives in suburbia who doesn't fit neatly into either bucket, mm -hmm. right? Because we're not really understanding what her needs are politically and then figuring out how to, how to get there. We're putting her in boxes. So what do we do about that? I don't know. I mean, I think we need to figure out how to understand their starting place. I think that's the, that's the, that's the basic. That's, the, that's step one. Again, if we don't understand why, why people like Amber feel ostracized on Georgetown's campus, just being a young conservative woman, then what's the point of even having the next part of the, the next step in the conversation, right? Having panels like last night and some of the others that we do, like, you know, have, just again, just starting there with understanding what the motivation is, understanding that, you know what, these people who are concerned, are they're not out to destroy women. They actually believe that they are empowering women with their policies. Okay. May not always agree, but at least I know that's, that's the motivation and I can go from there. What does the Republican party need to do? Um, it needs to, uh, honestly, it needs to shut up all the people who are, <laughs> Um, on their side, furthering this um, agenda, right? When the Todd Akins of the world, and you're seeing more and more, I mean, the number of shots SC Cup took during this session last night, during the event last night, Donald Trump, mm -hmm. right? Was encouraging. <laughs> Her Twitter is full of them, it's great. Right? Um, it's encouraging, you know. There are, there are firms now, Mindy Finn started a, uh, you know, this group, Empowering Women, that is about engaging and empowering conservative women to get involved in the process. There's a consulting firm out there, Burning Glass, that is now being run by conservative women to basically help the Republican Party, you know, come out of the Stone Ages in its rhetoric and understand, right, and to stop the Todd Akins of the world from, from because you know what, they are actually the minority. Most Republicans are not like that. Just giving the biggest microphone. But they're the ones who, who seize the microphone because mm -hmm. of a lot of problems with, right? I mean, our primary system tends to reward the fringes as opposed to the mainstream. And so you get people like that mm -hmm. um, who, you know, or, you know, Richard Murdoch, who, you know, in Indiana, who ended up defending Todd Akin's uh, legitimate rate comments, right? Like you just, people like that who don't know, um, who are just outside the mainstream of their party. So, but because of a whole host of issues in terms of how we communicate and how we digest information and what's interesting to the press um, and the 
the increasing to, you know, negative tone of our partisan politics, um, my side does a, they give us the ammo and we know how to seize on it. Right. And the same can be said on the other side with, you know, with some of the things that, that Democrats struggle with. Um, so the Republican Party needs to figure out how to empower more people like Essie and Mindy and, you know, the more mainstream candidates to not buy into this, to not feed into it. Mm-hmm. Um, the feminist movement, look, I don't know. <laughs> I don't know. It, um, I think it has for too long also fed into some of these false divisions, right? Whether it focuses too exclusively on the abortion issue, right? That's not to say groups like Planned Parenthood and NARAL don't have a role, mm-hmm. but they have become the face of feminism as opposed to a piece of it. Mm-hmm. And that's what that's what we were talking about last night with kind of the other part of the podcast is I think a lot of, I, I think the general consensus was that a lot of feminism, feel free to interrupt me as the, as my expert here, <laughs> has, be, has, has kind of become a single issue thing. And it's not like, obviously like there's, you know, equal pay and all these other components, but abortion rights have become such an overarching issue that it kind of sucks up all the oxygen in the room. I think one of the most controversial parts of the conversation last night came over the equal pay issue. Hmm. Um, How so? I meant it. I wouldn't even view that as a partisan issue. It is. It is. Um, Whereas the the entire panel and a number of people in the audience believe that it is a myth, that the the wage gap is a myth, right? Um, That Democrats and the left have co-opted. That Lily Ledbetter is a meaningless piece of legislation that is truly designed to be a boondoggle for trial lawyers because it doesn't do anything to guarantee equal pay. It just increases the statute of limitation to sue. Um, right? That there are three women sitting there last night who said, believe me, it is in our interest to be paid the same as men for equal work. But it doesn't take into, a, into account a lot of other factors, right? That women who take time off from their careers to raise a family or stay home with children for some time and then re-enter the workforce, of course, we'll be paid less. Um, I don't know. I don't, I mean, it was just an interesting for me as someone who has been very clear in support for, you know, uh, the democratic agenda on this issue. Um, just to hear one facts are not always facts. Facts are open to interpretation. Um, they argue that we interpret them wrong. We argue that they interpret them wrong. Uh, but at least I understood where they were coming from. And two, that there is just a different point of view that women are articulating on this point of view. It's not a bunch of old white guys saying the wage gap doesn't exist, that these were young, smart women, all with young children who were arguing, yeah, no, we're successful, we're there, that the pay gap as discussed is, you know, and not arguing that there's no sexism, absolutely arguing that there's sexism. It's just not in the form of... But just not system. the way we talk about it. And so it was just, again, I think our politics is richer when we actually listen to one another. And I was interesting to listen to that last night. Yeah, and it's interesting what I hear you saying as we sort of go through that trajectory is the biggest thing that I think has consequenced us are these political silos. And and it's not just Democrats and Republicans that are guilty of it. It's advocacy groups. It's social movements. It's feminism. It's conservatism. It's all of it. And bringing them together is... Is I think this is an, this is one example I think conservatism and feminism bringing those two together and right. having that conversation. We become I mean I think you said exactly right. We become siloed. We become a society of the others, right? Mm-hmm. Like we worry about our own parochial interests, and anyone that's against them is part of the others, right? They're one of them. They're out to get me, and so I've got to push back. There's, there's far more that ties us together than not. Again, that doesn't mean we're going to agree on everything, and I want to have that fight when we disagree on something because I believe that there is. You know, that certain courses of action lead to better governance, lead to a better society. I believe that shutting down the government is bad for the country, right? (laughs) I believe that, um, you know, I believe that there is a right and wrong on a lot of this. Um, But I got to make the case, and I can't make that case if I'm not even willing to listen to the other side. So I know I sound like a broken record, keep coming back to that, but um, that's why I'm really psyched about last night's event and that's why i'm really psyched about what we do here 
um, because we want that. And we want the students to tell us what, what are those conversations, right? And what are the political implications of this? Georgetown students are freaking smart as hell. And they love to engage in discussions about policy. But then you run into a brick wall when politics pops up, right? And so beginning to have, there's, there are so many policy issues that are clear cut that people believe in, but politics confuses it. And so being able to understand that, right? 80% of the country says it supports equal pay for equal work, equal pay for women. Um, and so that's become the political rallying cry, but it is a little bit more confusing than that, right? It is a little bit more nuanced than that. Does Lily Ledbetter really, I mean, I support it, but does it really guarantee equal pay? And if a Republican opposed it, does that mean that they're against equal they're pay, against right? equal that... pay for women? Right. I mean, we can't really have figure it, figure it out if. You know, if we're not um, if we're not talking about the politics that go with it as well. I mean, and to that point, I'm just going to this will be my kind of final. I think it culminates a lot of what we talked about. But um, do you think it's unfair for just and I think generally for the feminist movement, but female politicians as well and just female in the political space like the panel last night, that women who do not support uh, viscerally pro women policies um, are sort of isolated from the feminist movement or it's just something that they're not allowed to do it's an unspoken responsibility that women have to support everything pro women yeah i think when we exclude we tend to uh weaken and i think that's very much true here and i think it's true on the others uh, you know on our side too when, uh, when you know when when democrats are excluded from conversations about faith i think that weakens the argument when when republicans are excluded from conversations about race or gender or mm -hmm. any things that are typically associated with being democratic positions or progressive positions or people are so rigid in their definitions about what it means to be a feminist or what it means to be a person of faith or what it means to be x y or z um, people interpret differently people practice differently um, again, you're no more of a woman who believes in empowering women just because you disagree on some issues. Um, it's interesting. There are a couple of politically, there are a couple of, um, conversations, particularly in the, in, in this space that tend to unify, uh, women across the aisle. Um, there's a bipartisan group of women senators who meet regularly. Uh, and you hear them say this all the time, right? That when you put a woman in the room, we tend to get results because we're less interested in fighting than there the men are. There small studies that have shown that as well. So. <laughs> um, and so, right, I mean, the number of women that, that said, you know what, during the, the last big budget crisis, it said, you know what, just maybe we should just let us into the room and, and handle this, right? <laughs> so this. <laughs> um, I think there is something to be said about the fact that uh, there tends to be more bipartisanship on the hill amongst women members, right? Than there are than there are about, uh, men. Um, again, overgeneralizing, but that's that. I mean, you see it. You act. It's it's palpable. Um, one of the things we spent some time talking about yesterday, and this is much less policy, but so important in public life, um, is sexism against you know uh, women in politics and the fact that you know. Hillary Clinton, uh, there isn't a story about a Hillary Clinton event where they don't talk about her hair or what she's wearing, mm -hmm. right? That when Sarah Palin was uh, selected as John McCain's running mate, uh, there were people who were openly wondering whether or not she could do the job of vice president effectively with small children at home. But no one was asking if Barack Obama could do the job of president effectively with small children at home. Um, the number of just gross sexist things, sexual things that are said about women in public life, right? The, the, I see it on their Twitter, Twitter feeds all the yeah. time, right? Essie Cup and Amanda Carpenter um, are, I mean, some, I mean, the, there are things that are said there that just would make any, you know, rational person just blush or be shamed. It's just, right. There's literally no way you would say this in real life. Or maybe, maybe, <laughs> maybe, they, maybe these people yeah. would, right? But, <laughs> but, um, they wouldn't say it about a guy. 
Right. Right? And so that is very real. I wrote a piece for salon.com a couple years ago, actually right before I started the DNC. Um, I have a small daughter at home. Uh, at the time, she was three years old. And I wrote her a piece on Father's Day um, that was titled to my daughter on Father's Day. I'm sorry, I used to be a sexist. Uh, and it was because before I had a daughter and before I worked for Hillary Clinton, I didn't notice a lot of these sexist, subtle sexisms in society that penetrate into the public's face and that I think actually weaken our public discourse. One of the points that they made last night was if you want to engage more women in politics, you have to make public service more appealing. I can understand why a lot of women would not find it appealing when they're everyone is treated like like, like garbage in a public space. <laughs> women, women are objectified in a way that men aren't. And, um, and it's tough. And so, um, that is something that I would hope, um, both sides of the ideological spectrum, all sides of the ideological spectrum, all sides of the, of the policy debate could at least agree on and begin to figure out how to tackle. Well, there's no better way I would have wanted to end that. (laughs) That was a great ending point. So touche. Yeah, that's perfect. Okay, cool. Thank you. Anything else? Not yet. That was really great. All right. We're really excited. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Georgetown Public Policy Review Podcast. As the in-house feminist for GPPR, nothing excites me more than us hosting an hour-long chat on all things women in politics. So if you've made it this far, I personally congratulate you. I also want to thank all of our guests on this podcast who gladly took time to sit down and chat with us, especially Mo, whose planned interview of 15 minutes turned into almost 40. Uh, If you're interested in all things policy wonk, check us out at gppreview.com, on Twitter at GPP Policy Review, and on Facebook. We'll talk to you next time.